This is the History of the World podcast with me, Chris Hasler. And this is Volume 2, The Ancient World. Episode 29, Neolithic China. river system society of the ancient world. We've described Mesopotamia, the Nile Valley, the Indus Valley, and now we move over to China. Let's clarify what we already know about Neolithic China. We know pottery emerged very early in China and the cultivation of rice may not have been long after. Also, we know that the Chinese societies were independently domesticating pigs, yak, buffalo and jungle fowl. Evidence of millet cultivation soon followed. By and large, these societies were settling around the Yellow and Yangtze rivers. It's time to look at the next stage of China's history and bring it up to date with the rest of the areas in the podcast. Initially, we are going to target the Yangtze River and explore what was happening around there. We are going to go right back to 5500 BCE. This might sound like a long time ago when compared to our other ancient world stories, but when it comes to China it is very important that we appreciate that a lot of the cultural emergencies that we're about to start have evolved into the China that we know today. We picked up on this during the episodes about the story of writing where we believe that the earliest Chinese writings are a direct ancestor to modern Chinese writing. China is astonishing for this reason. Its culture has survived even though the power has shifted and we can't say that about our other ancient river societies whose cultures have had to have been interpreted without any modern clues. Hemudu Back in 1973 an ancient site was discovered that would open a doorway into the past when it came to the story of China. It has been called Hemudu and has become the name of the culture of the region. It was a pivotal moment for the story of China and its history due to the fact that it was believed that the first civilised cultures emerged around the Yellow River and not the Yangtze River, which was the river of Hemudu. The Yangtze River was more tropical in climate 7,500 years ago than it is today, and it was an area of high fertility, and plant growth attracts animals, and water, plants and animals attract humans, who began to coalesce around the banks of the Yangtze River 
and the lands of the Yangtze Delta. So it stands to reason that this river was just as important, if not more important, than the Yellow River further to its north. The excavations at Hemudu demonstrate a lot about the lifestyle of the people who lived there. We know that the people of the Hemudu culture were navigating the river and the coast in ore-powered boats. We also know that they were cultivating rice, as we can find remnants among the potsherds. Artifacts such as jewellery items and tools were being created using stone, wood, bone and jade, with jade being a bright green mineral which was closely associated with Chinese cultures. We can also find clues relating to the Hemudu diet with the discovery of hunting weapons such as arrowheads and harpoons. Regular flooding of the Yangtze River would have provided good fertile lands for agriculture and remains of wild deer and buffalo demonstrate a mixture of hunting and domesticated livestock. Various fruits were gathered such as kiwi, melon and peaches. The Chinese cultures may have been the most innovative when it came to ceramics with a long history of creating clay pots, something which took thousands of years to emerge in the Near East and Egypt. The Hemudu pots were very distinctive for their charcoal coloured black appearance. Majabang Roughly speaking, the Hemudu culture emerged on the southern banks and the coastal lands of the Yangtze River. To the north of the river, another culture was emerging at around 5000 BCE. The culture is called the Majabang culture, named after the site of Majabang. Cultural distinctions between the Majabang and the Hemudu are still argued to this day. So let's look at the Majabang culture more closely. In some early cultures of China, the status of rice in terms of its importance to any given culture can be questioned, with some scholars stating that millet was the staple crop and rice was a secondary crop, more commonly used in the production of alcohol for example. However, the paddy fields excavated in conjunction with the Majabang culture demonstrate that rice was a very serious production of this region and culture. By and large, many aspects of the Majabang culture are similar to those of the Hemudu culture. Excavations demonstrate an agricultural lifestyle with domestication including hunting and gathering as well as fishing in the river. There seems to be little evidence of conflict. Both the Majabang and the Hemudu cultures appear to have coexisted throughout the 5th millennium BCE and well into the 4th millennium BCE. Advances in technologies and lifestyles are evident. For example, the Majabang would start creating materials using 
the rib stitch technique, which is a complex method when compared to standard weaving. By taking a wider view of civilization and looking at the advances of both cultures, we can determine that advanced methods of architecture emerged in areas of the Hemadu, with houses being built on staked ridge poles, which would enable a higher foundation to be built and is still something seen in the less affluent areas of China today. Other cultures. Neolithic China is not unlike Neolithic Mesopotamia where various cultures were emerging in various areas of the river valleys. Some of you may remember back in episode 21, which was the first episode of the two that were published about the story of writing, that we mentioned some developments in China. Let's go back and remind ourselves about what we learned. We spoke of activity at a site called Jiahu, which was important due to the discovery of inscribed symbols on tortoise shells which may have represented an early form of writing. Society at Jiahu may have emerged as much as 2000 years earlier than the Yangtze River societies of Hemudu and Majabang. Jiahu is considered to be part of the wider Paeligang culture, which emerged around the Yellow River in around 7000 BCE. The Yellow River is further north, over 500 miles away from the Yangtze River, and the Paeligang were certainly agricultural, and they were also known for their pottery, which is something that took a lot more time to emerge in other Neolithic cultures. The Paeligang culture lasted until around 5000 BCE and it is possibly flooding that caused the sites to be abandoned. Further up the Yellow River, around 500 miles inland from the mouth of the river, we discovered the site of Banpo. We mention Banpo as another Chinese site where we find inscribed symbols that could be a form of early writing, but Banpo is so much more than this as it is the type site of a very significant Neolithic culture of China called the Yangshao culture. Yangshao culture we shouldn't be too surprised to find evidence of pottery kilns at Banpo. The Chinese were not the only people to be using ceramics, but we certainly think that they were the earliest experts at creating ceramic vessels, even now being thought to be the influence on the successful and well-known Jomon pottery of early Japan. The pottery of the Yangshao culture is worth talking about. It is notable for its decoration with many different designs and illustrations using multiple colours on different coloured clays. The illustrations were unsurprisingly depictions of humans, animals, mysterious and possibly mythological creatures and female genitals. There is absolutely no doubt that we have many connections here with contemporary cultures of the world and with older prehistoric cultures.
human beings seem to have a natural fascination and inquisitiveness when it comes to the nature of the living world itself, including the wonder of the human female's ability to procreate and the natural imagination of humans with the elaboration of real animals and aspects of their physical form being stretched and moulded into something different, maybe even spiritual and shamanic. The pots were created by stacking rolls of clay on top of one another and then smoothing the surfaces, which was a method which predated the invention of the potter's wheel. Another interesting observation is the fact that very young infants were actually buried in ceramic vessels unlike older children and adults. So we can also get an insight into the Yangshao burial culture. There is evidence of secondary burial which is the practice of laying the dead to rest in temporary graves to allow the body to decompose to a stage where the remains can be exhumed and in the case of Yangshao burials the bones cleaned before a reburial. The nature of the graves could differ with some graves being lined before the placement of the body or sometimes bodies as some secondary graves could be the final resting place for more than one body. We also see the prehistoric human tradition of the placement of grave goods. It seems that human nature around the world is to believe in some kind of afterlife, which may be the general way that humans can make sense of the circle of life and their own mortality. This also points us in the direction of another important prehistoric human development of the stratification of large societies. Grave goods would differ and demonstrate a difference in the importance of individuals. Cemeteries were apparently quite general with a mixture of the amount of grave goods found in individual graves. With a lack of written support to explain the reasons for all of this, we have to take guesses. And this is where we can all join in and offer our opinions. A beautiful thing about the study of history. The fact that we see large amounts of grave goods in the graves of some children, in my mind, points towards an elite class whose wealth and status followed a family line. Some experts believe that the Yangshao society may have started as a matrilineal society and turned into a patrilineal society. Buildings show evidence of being constructed using the rammed earth method, which is a method of compacting earth materials into a framework and allowing it to set in place before removing the framework, so different from the mud brick constructions of many other societies of a similar age. Another interesting aspect of the culture relates to a subject that we mentioned earlier is with the creation and use of textiles. We mentioned the impressive and advanced rib stitch weaving technique of Majabang. The Yangshao would have been using hemp to create textiles and clothing, and to a lesser degree, they may have been using silk. Hemp was cultivated 
while silk was cultivated from an animal called Bombyx mori, which is more commonly known as the domestic silkworm. The domestic silkworms create silk while pupating, and this silk can be used to create desirable material. Silk is highly desirable. It is good to look at, it feels good to the touch, and it is comfortable to wear. Although we do know that there appeared to be a trade link between the Indus Valley civilization of the 3rd millennium BCE and Chinese cultures as evidenced by the discovery of jade in the Indus Valley. Silk would ultimately give its name to the Silk Road, which is the healthy emergence of a trade link between East and West, which emerged around 2000 years ago. However, a trade link between East and West existed long before this, with the Indus Valley civilization being a link between the two. And silk was just one of the products that attracted Western merchants, as spice was highly sought after too, just as one example. The Yangshao culture lasted until 3000 BCE, when it appears to have modernised into something else. So rather than there being a suggested disappearance due to invasion or climatic reasons, it appears to have been supplanted by something distinct. And this has been called the Longshan culture. Longshan culture The Longshan culture is considered to be a progression in culture and this is something that distinguishes China from other cultures in the fact that cultures appear to develop from existing ones rather than be forcibly replaced. The alternative name for the Longshan culture is the Black Pottery culture. As we know, Black Pottery was not a new thing with the Hemudu culture known to produce charcoal coloured clay. This differs from their contemporaries, the Majabang and the Yangshao, who appeared to produce more red clay items. However, when the Longshan culture emerged, it appears that it expanded from the lands of the Yangshao into the lands of the Majabang, and perhaps into the Hemudu. So it was possible that the Longshan culture took the art of black pottery from the Hemudu, who had been replaced alongside the Majabang and the Yangshao by 3000 BCE. In fact, it is worth mentioning the displacement of the Hemudu culture due to the fact that DNA evidence suggests that there was a migration of peoples after the Hemudu culture dispersed in around 3000 BCE. It is possible that a contingent initially migrated onto the island of Taiwan before migrating over the course of the next few thousand years to the islands of Southeast Asia and then onto the islands of Melanesia and Micronesia and then in the common era westwards to the island of Madagascar and also eastwards to Polynesia and New Zealand. Due to the success 
of the Longshan culture, it is possible for scholars to separate the culture into geographical subgroups. But they are all much more culturally connected than previous cultures of the same lands. So rather than going into a lot of detail about all the different localities of the Longshan culture, we will try to keep it to a much more general overview so that we can make good and steady progress to the second millennium BCE. The black pottery is significant as this could very well be the first instance in Chinese history of pottery created with the use of a potter's wheel. Another advance of the Longshan culture was in their stone tools which were created by polishing which is a method of creating edges by the continued chipping and grinding of the tool to achieve the desired result which could be an axe or an adze for example. Notably we see the presence of external settlement walls and an increase in the amount of arrowheads during this period. So this would suggest conflict and maybe this was as a result of a competition for resources between Longshan societies. So we can see typical modernizations that we have seen elsewhere. In both Mesopotamia and Egypt societies fragmented and challenged each other during the third and second millenniums BCE. The advances in tool production likely had a positive impact on agriculture and we do have evidence of the agriculture of the Longshan culture. Different types of millet were being cultivated as well as rice and wheat. Pigs and dogs were traditionally being domestically produced throughout the Chinese Neolithic but we also see more sheep, goats and cattle being produced too. There is definite evidence of sericulture demonstrating the production of silk. Specialised agricultural tools have also been discovered. One particular archaeological site that relates to the Longshan culture is called Taosi and can be found in the modern Shanxi province of China and close to the Yellow River. The site is believed to have been occupied from around 2300 BCE. Taosi had the typical rammed earth perimeter wall that is not unexpected at Longshan sites. However, the perimeter was only around a particular area of the city, which indicates the presence of stratification within the society, with the elite enjoying the comfort of the defences of the walls, while the rest of society would have to make do on the outside. It would be in the year 2003 that a fascinating discovery was made at Taosa. Essentially, it is a large constructed platform that has evidence of foundations for pillars. Further analyses of the pillars demonstrate a link to the sun and the moon, with the slots in between the pillars having been determined to be the area of the sky where the sun and moon would rise and particularly at solstices, which has led to this discovery being labelled as an observatory.
This presents a very strong link to other Neolithic and ancient societies. And with there being doubts about the cultural connections between China and the Eurasian societies to their west, it raises the question of whether this kind of behaviour is a natural progression of human intellect and inquisitiveness, or whether the fascination and study of the objects of the sky is part of a global cultural spread. However, the people of China gained their curiosity in the heavenly bodies, whether influenced by migrating culture or just pure natural human inquisitiveness in the sky, this is certainly the earliest evidence of such an observatory in the Far East. Such is the importance of this site in a scientific and historical sense that there has been a major effort to secure the land for the purposes of creating an archaeological site. The site at Taosa is a fine example of a late Longshan culture site. So what's happened to the Longshan culture ultimately? Geographically, the Longshan was concentrated around the mouth of the Yellow River, with its influence spreading outwards. Further up the river at the Longshan type site of Taosa, we can see that the Longshan culture declined and actually disappeared. Some scientists speculate that this happened due to the decline of northern hemisphere temperatures, which followed the Holocene climatic optimum. However, even if the type site declined, other sites continued and evolved, so it may be a little convenient to blame climate change for this one. And I bet you'd never believed I'd say that. One of our problems is that archaeology tells us one story about the next period, while Chinese tradition tells us another story. So let's try to work out what happened. Before the Shang Dynasty Next week, we will be discussing the Shang Dynasty. The Shang Dynasty of China emerged around the 16th century BCE, while the Longshan culture had declined at the beginning of the second millennium BCE. So let us discuss what happened in the middle. According to traditional Chinese history, there was a dynasty which preceded the Shang dynasty, and its name was the Xia dynasty. Apparently, during the 3rd millennium BCE, an emperor emerged from the tribes of prehistoric China, and his name was Huang Ti, also known as the Yellow Emperor. The Yellow Emperor would establish a government of China, and was succeeded by his grandson, Xuang Tzu. Xuang Tzu's rule was contemporary with the emergence of the Xia tribe, and the Xia tribe would rise to be the supreme tribe over the tribe of Chio, called the Nine Li tribe. Different legends and histories contain slightly different stories, but I am going to allow the American writer Emily Mark's article on the ancient history encyclopedia lead my narrative here. 
She mentions that there was a Xia dynasty emperor called Yao and that he requested that a man called Gun work to control the floods of the Yellow River in order to prevent lands being destroyed. However, Gun was not successful and many people remained homeless as a consequence. Shun was the new emperor after Yao and he asked Gun's own son, who was called Yu, to try to succeed at controlling the floodwaters where his father had failed. Yu had learned a lot from the mistakes of his father and was able to succeed in controlling the floodwaters. Such was the adulation that Yu had received by saving the population that Emperor Shun would announce Yu as his successor and Yu would come to be known as Yu the Great and in some traditions is known as the first great emperor of the Xia dynasty. The late emperors of the Xia dynasty are not spoken of in great terms. The last ruler of the Xia dynasty was Jia and he was overthrown by Tang. Tang was the first king of the Shang dynasty which is the first dynasty of China for which we have firm archaeological evidence of its existence. So if we don't have any archaeological evidence of the Xia dynasty, what do we have? So we established that the Longshang culture went into a decline in around 1900 BCE. A site was discovered at a place called Arlito, which provides archaeological evidence from the period between the Longshang culture and the Shang dynasty. Arlito shows signs of advanced bronze technology with the excavation of a bronze workshop. There is also evidence of palaces which point towards the emergence of a more modern culture with an elite class of rulers. Archaeologists have now called this the type site of the Arlito culture which is upriver near the Yellow River. Archaeologists have found evidence of very important palace buildings connected by constructed avenues. However, the most notable discovery is of burial sites and considerable grave goods. We are not surprised to find bronze and jade artefacts among these, but they are also joined by some impressive pottery and items made from seashells, turquoise and cinnabar which is a scarlet coloured mineral. With all of this impressive looking building work and impressive artefacts, we should explore whether the archaeological site of Arlito could be the centre of the mysterious Xia dynasty. Archaeologists are convinced that Arlito is a capital city due to the importance of the discoveries. It is undoubtedly the home of a very elite class of people who were highly revered within their society. So it is very possible that this could be the centre of a highly influential dynasty. The problem is that nobody can categorically say whether it is exactly the Xia dynasty or not, but it does look like the Arlito culture is the likeliest candidate and that it is a real possibility. This is a very concentrated view of Neolithic China. 
there are many sites of many different ages in Chinese lands. Similar trends in the progress of China can be recognised when compared to other cultures of the Near East. We know that the Chinese appear to be well ahead of other global cultures when it comes to pottery. We do see similar trends in the emergence of agriculture with the domestication of animals and crops, although the types of animal and crops were specific to the region. Metallurgy emerged as China entered the Bronze Age, consistent with the other cultures that we have already explored. We also saw the emergence of a writing system that can be directly related to the modern system of Chinese writing. Essentially, cultures coalesced and prospered around the upper and lower Yellow and Yangtze rivers. Other societies emerged for different periods on the coastal lands and the island of Taiwan. It would be around the year 1750 BCE that the first major dynasty for which we have substantial evidence of would emerge in northern and eastern China. They are the Shang dynasty, centred around the Yellow River, but also influential on the lands around the Yangtze River. Next week, we will tell the story of the Shang dynasty, the second traditional dynasty of China after the Xia. And it wouldn't be right for us to get to this point of the episode without me saying thank you to you for listening to this week's podcast. So let's go through some updates about the History of the World podcast. And interestingly enough, we've had almost 40,000 views on the study of antiquity in the Middle Ages recreation of a visual version of episode 10, The Religions of Ancient Canaan and Phoenicia. Now, anything to do with religion and this area of the world is always going to attract a lot of interest and not all of it is positive and especially on a volatile forum such as YouTube where everyone has got plenty to say so there's a lot of positive and negative feedback for the work that we've created it's just the nature of YouTube we, it doesn't bother me that there's positive and negative feedback but it's always interesting to see in fact um, the negative feedback when it's constructively put over can often help me to enhance my view of what's going on in these stories so sometimes it can be a very welcome criticism in fact one of the criticisms that was leveled was the fact that at the end of the podcast episode there was a lot of self-promotion and I can only imagine that's just me reading out some of the reviews and to be quite honest with you, a lot of the reviews were very, very positive anyway, as you will probably be aware if you've listened to the whole series. And that's just, thankfully, down to the kind nature of everyone who does listen to the podcast. So it's not that I don't read out the bad reviews, I just don't get that many because I don't think uh, the kind of people that listen to podcasts like this are really in it to be too critical and uh, most people who get to the end of episodes and do spend their time listening to it genuinely appreciate it so it's not really self-promotion so much as just giving people 
the time and respect that they deserve for taking the time to say positive things about the podcast. But generally speaking, to almost rattle up 40,000 views in no time at all is fantastic and uh, I never thought I would see it um, compared to the late Bronze Age Collapse episode. This one appears to be even more popular. If you haven't watched the YouTube videos yet, then just go to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and follow the links from the interactive section into the History of the World podcast YouTube channel. I've put them all in one place, the four videos. Another way to access them is to go to the Volume 2 library and uh, and click on the YouTube links that exist in that list. So just go there, give it a try, let us know what you think, post a comment underneath. Now, if you want to support the podcast, then by all means you can make monthly donations to the podcast by visiting the Patreon page. Once again, the link is at the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website. And uh, the Patreons that are regularly contributing, I'd like to say thank you to them all. Andy Hardy, Eric G. Young, Jared Paulus, uh, Karen Pleschett-Snig, Kevin Koch, Mark Veldman and Matty Yokimo. Some of you have already started qualifying for some of the rewards that are on offer and I know a couple of you have already crossed the threshold for the gift pack. So there will be a personalised History of the World podcast gift pack, nothing too major, just a couple of thank you gifts for uh, for the continued donations. If you want to join in, you can do it for as little as $1, $1 a month. It all adds up. We've got people who donate $1 a month and upwards and um, you can still qualify for the rewards by having an accumulative contribution over a month so you don't have to commit to a large contribution each month. You can still uh, contribute nonetheless. If you uh, if you can't make any financial contribution, then it's really vital that you rate and review the podcast, keep us moving up the charts and making us more and more popular, which we are becoming. We're almost uh, reached the point of having 2,000 um, new listens to the podcast when it comes out each week, and there's been over 8,000 general listens to all of the episodes this week, and I've never, ever seen it that high. So well done, everybody. If you don't follow us on Twitter yet, then make sure that you follow us. The handle is Hot World Podcast, Hot H O T History of the World Podcast, Hot World Podcast. Uh, we had a fantastic discussion um, just last weekend about the uh, how tents were being built in the Near East. Um, so it's amazing some of the conversations you can get into just randomly and uh, that was one of them from last week on Twitter so if you follow the History of the World podcast Twitter account you can join in wonderful conversations about tents what else would you want to do on a Sunday this week I discovered that the History of the World podcast is available on Podbean, so if you like Podbean and you use Podbean, you can find us on there now. Okay, a couple of messages received this week. Uh, first one from Craig Green, who put, Hi Chris, just wanted to let you know your very informative podcast is being enjoyed here in New Zealand, which as you will know, has the distinction of being the last major landmass in the world to be populated by humans. 
I'm binging on my commute to and from work every day. And it is interesting to listen to you describe how we have evolved into who we are today while observing my fellow commuters. I wonder how many others are doing the same thing. Keep up the good work. Um, thank you, Craig. Thanks for that message. Um, yes, of course, New Zealand, fantastic. I'm looking forward to telling that story, but I fear it is some way off yet. And the rich sort of 800-year history of uh, the human occupation of New Zealand, not to be ignored, not to be undermined by any other culture in my eyes. Uh, the distinction that New Zealand has uh, is a proud one and it's an amazing one as well. So I think it's something that New Zealanders should be proud of. So thanks for the message, Craig. Thank you ever so much and great to know that you're listening from New Zealand. And then another message we have from Paul Friedlieb. Hi, Chris. Hello from Perth, Western Australia. A quick note to say thank you for creating this wonderful podcast. I suspect like many of your listeners, I am merely a novice with a great thirst for an understanding of world history. The way you cover topics and deliver the content is simple, concise and easy to follow. Please understand the real value add to people's lives with your work. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. That is an incredibly kind message. I can't thank you enough for that warm message. Thank you very much indeed. Well, that'll be enough for this week. Next week, we're moving into Shang, China. So that should be extremely interesting. Uh, and some more names and places f that will challenge my pronunciation skills and no doubt show them up to be the amateurish efforts that they, they truly are. But nonetheless, we'll still give them a try, won't we? There's no point in uh, shying away. You've got to go for it, haven't you? So next week, Shang, China. Look forward to hooking up with you once again then, and I hope you have a great week, everybody. The History of the World podcast is available on many different podcast platforms, so please don't forget to rate and review us wherever you find us. Visit our website at historyoftheworldpodcast.com and email us at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail. Com. Support the podcast at Patreon by clicking the support the podcast link at our website and join us on social media at Facebook, Twitter and Tumblr.